Concentration is vital. You must be one with the rock. Spot, I appreciate your concern, but if you don't stop distracting me, I'm liable to be one with <laughs> Lock, stardate 47635444. These are the voyages of the podcast Best Forgotten Movies. Its endless mission to explore strange old films, to seek out cult classics and forgotten blockbusters, to boldly go where many movie podcasts have gone before. I'm your captain, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full time co host and part time triple tickler, Yeoman Andrew Phillips. Really, that one, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost angelic. I would say, yeah, thanks. and in time for the release of Star Trek Beyond, we're exploring the Star Trek before as we take on the William Shatner directed Star Trek V The Final Frontier. Star Trek Beyond Saving <laughs> that's what it should have gone with. Star Trek Beyond Saving. But before we start talking about this, here's the trailer from a relaxing vacation on Earth. Greetings, Captain. I do not think you realize the gravity of your situation. <laughs> to the most perilous reaches of space. Only one crew dare travel where no man has ever gone before. We'll need all the power you can muster, mister. On a desolate planet, a renegade Vulcan seeks ultimate knowledge. To find it, we'll need a starship. And he will stop at nothing to get it. I dreamt that a madman had taken over the Enterprise. <laughs> you look like you've just seen a ghost. Perhaps I have, Captain. Our destination is the planet Shakari, Eden, at the center of the galaxy. The center of the galaxy can't be reached. If you ask me, and you haven't, I think this is a terrible idea. We're bound to bump into the Klingons. Remain on course. To Kirk, he's a fanatic to be fought. You know we'll never make it through the Great Barrier. I say the danger is an illusion. To the crew, he's a mystic to be followed. Cyborg has simply put us in touch with feelings that we've always been. I have to get back to the transporter. To Spock, he's the past he must confront. Shoot him! You know I'm right. Spock, my only concern is getting the ship back. And you're either with me or you're not. Put him in the brig with Captain Kirk. I'm a prisoner on my own ship. What are you standing around for? Do you not know a jailbreak when you see one? Mr. Scott, you're amazing. There's nothing amazing about it. I know this ship like the back of my hand. Emergency channel open. A hostile force has taken control of our vessel. Put us on a direct course with the Great Barrier. Understood, Enterprise. We are dispatching a rescue ship immediately. Bird of prey bearing one zero five mark two. Let me do something, Mr. Sulu. Full ahead. Transfer power to warp drive. Warp speed now. The greatest enterprise of all is adventure. Star Trek V: The Final Frontier. 
set your faces to fun as we're taking on Star Trek V. So very tired. <laughs> A Star Trek film so dull, it'll leave you pining for Harry Mudd. When Mr. Spock's long-lost half-brother Psylocke hijacks the Enterprise to aid his search for the Almighty, it's left to Kirk, Bones and Mr. Spock to stop him and blow up God in this much maligned sequel. (laughs) But is the final frontier worth beaming aboard, or should we unload our photon torpedoes on this sucker? Well, that's one of the many questions we're here to answer. But first, Andy, you nominated Star Trek V for discussion on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose this film? Did I nominate it, or did we both nominate I it? I originally nominated um, The Undiscovered Cunt. <laughs> the Undiscovered Cunt? What's it called? The Undiscovered, the, the undiscovered Cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. I think you nominated Star Trek VI, but it's just too good to be honest. I just thought this was a better fit, because this is one that's out of all the first six original cast movies, this is the one that gets talked about the least. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's it's the least well-received out of all of them as well. And it's probably got the most interesting production history as well, just in terms of who's directing it, what happened in the making of it, and just the final result. Because the two films either side of it, it's the old um, Star Trek even-numbered thing, where all the odd-numbered films, up until a point, were always deemed as as being weaker than the even-numbered films which uh, Star Trek Nemesis put the kibosh on. Yeah. And which actually, I, I now, now we're in a cycle. debate as well, yeah. actually, because uh, the motion picture is actually one of my favourite Star yeah, Trek and, films. and there's nothing wrong with uh, Star Trek 3. I mean, it's not Wrath of Khan, but it's yeah, still I've, pretty good. I think that's the thing. It only pales in comparison to Wrath of Khan. It only fails when you do that. But uh, as a standalone Star Trek film, it's actually rather good. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's funny that now that the the curse has been shifted the other way around from Star Trek Nemesis onward, actually. Yes, it has. Because, yeah, um, Nemesis and Into Darkness have kind of been both quite underwhelming. Well, does this mean that things are looking good for Star Trek Beyond? Uh, Possibly. Mm. Maybe they want to book the trend and send it back the other way, though. We're never quite sure with these anymore. So I take it this is not your first time watching Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. I mean, I must say straight off, by the way, I nicked that so very tired joke from The Simpsons. <laughs> it's one of my favourite, like, Simpsons gags, Star yeah. Trek gags. This is the one that I always remembered as being, oh, this is the one that starts off with the Yosemite climb. Yeah. And I always remembered it as being that one from being very, very young. It's strange you mentioned that because that was my experience with the film as well. I think when we spoke about it years and years ago, we were talking about Star Trek films, and I remember saying, oh, which was the one with the rock climbing at the beginning? Because yeah. I've seen this film a couple of times growing up, and all I could remember was there was a film that started with Captain Kirk climbing Yosemite yeah. in Yosemite and it ended with them blowing up God. I never actually remembered the God bit. The only other thing I really remember from it, just because it's so fucking weird, is the uh, Uhura dance. Oh, it is. It's yeah. very strange. Yeah. It's like, Grandma, no. Yeah, that's a very, very odd moment in Star Trek as a whole, not just not just yeah. this film. <laughs> yeah, that is this film's legacy. Yeah, those were the two main things I remembered and a little bit of Paradise City as well. I kind of recall the other films more than this one. I definitely recall the other films more than this one. I mean, I haven't seen all of the original cast films. I Mm. I still haven't seen The Undiscovered Country. Yeah, which you must see. Well, that's the thing. You've always warned me off it because there isn't a Blu-ray version, a HD version of the director's cut. No. Is what you've always said. So I've always hung in there waiting for it. Or even just the video version because I watched the theatrical cut. 
And it baffled me how many things, like, crucial things were missing from it. Yeah. Because I never saw it at the cinema. I always saw it on video and, and DVD. And that has the video cut on it. And then I know that there's a special edition, which is very similar to the video cut. There's several things in it that just aren't there. So I really want you to see the film, but obviously you want to see it in HD. But it's looking increasingly so that that may not be possible yet. Yes. This film is in stark contrast to the, the two at either side. Because mm-hmm. the two either side are definitely yeah, held dear as being yeah, some of the strongest of the original cast films. Yeah. Although, yeah, I'd say six is probably a little bit better than four. The thing is with this film as well, it's coming off the back of four, which was a massive hit. It was it's actually the, the strongest Star Trek film to date at that point. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure, I think, on this film. But then also a kind of a little bit of trepidation that they'd left it a bit too long. And also yeah. the Star Trek brand uh, as a film series was starting to wane. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure why the worry of that, though, because this is the first film that they made since... Next Generation came out, so you would think that there would be a renewed interest in Star Trek rather than it just being on its own. I think they were perhaps just worried that interest in the original cast of the Star Trek, the original series, had dwindled and people were more interested in this new revamped version of Star Trek with all yeah, its bells suppose, and yeah. whistles. And they were yeah. thinking that, well, why would people go to the cinema to watch it when they can sit at home and watch something much better in their eyes mm. and younger? And unfortunately, this is the film that kind of makes those things ring true. Yeah, it actually um, kind of proves that statement right. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. And they had kind of had to correct it with the last film, which I don't think they were meant to make. I'm sure this was meant no, to be the last one. This was was titled in all was yeah. designed to be the last Star Trek film, the final frontier. Yeah, and I think they just wanted to make sure that it didn't end on a whimper. Yeah. Which it ended up doing anyway because they jumped the shark and did Star Trek Generations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyway, before we actually get into it, we are both familiar with Star Trek, this film, uh, yeah. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Again, I grew up with the Star Trek series. Um, would you consider yourself a fan of Star Trek? What of Star Trek have you seen? I think it's important that we establish yeah. this before we go any further. I'd probably consider myself a casual fan. Yeah, It's something I've seen a lot of mainly thanks to my dad i mean i've seen all the movies every single one and i've seen quite a large proportion of the series uh, quite a bit of the original series when i was little yeah quite a bit of next generation and and voyager and deep space nine and i mean to be honest the only one i haven't seen anything of odds uh, uh, the i think the only thing i've not seen anything of at all is enterprise yeah i think because it was a little bit too late i think no, i haven't it, seen it i remember it but i haven't seen it i think it was just growing up in the 90s it was always on bbc2 yeah i think my favorite series is probably Deep Space Nine just because I like the characters the most Mm -hmm. I think I know a lot of people don't like that series as much no, I, I do have a, a basic background in Star Trek, but it's not something where I would sit down and watch the box sets like my dad does. Yeah. I don't know it inside and out, but I do have a, a fairly good appreciation yeah. of it, and I know roughly how it all works and everything. I'm similar to you. I'd say um, when it comes to the original series, I've perhaps watched that a lot more than anything else. In fact, I can definitely say that outright. I grew up with the original series. Mm. It was something that my family were fans of. And so uh, it started off as just something that was on in the background a lot Mm. and then it became something that i actually actively took part in watching however i've never really taken that appreciation of star trek beyond the original series i've never watched any of the next generation i've never watched any of the other spin-offs like Mm. voyager deep space nine or enterprise even though i do own the next generation box set on blu-ray which i bought very recently I've watched the original series several times over. So, Captain Kirk, Bones, Spock, this is what I want from yeah. a Star Trek property. Yeah. And so, it's a it's a shame that this film <laughs> does a disservice to all that, really. Although, I would say that the, the strongest part of this film still is in its characters. I think that's always something that shines through, is just the general chemistry between the actors. Yeah. They clearly love playing the roles. 
and they still have something to do with them. It's just everything around it, really, that's... Yeah, exactly. That's, it, uh, it lets them down. Yeah. It lets that, those relationships down as well. Yeah. So anyone who listens to Best Forgotten Movies knows we like to provide a little background on the films that we cover. And so what is the story behind Star Trek V and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls? Well, I think we need to go as far back, at least last two films yeah search for spock and the voyage home which has the star trek enterprise crew looking for whales in the past not the country the animal (laughs) yeah (laughs) that'd be brilliant but yeah i do think we need to start with the lenoid 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 nimoy oh this is gonna be fun i think we need to start with the leonard nimoy directed films yeah because yeah i mean they're still uh, quite fondly regarded now and i think basically the idea was when they went to do Star Trek Four, and obviously Leonard Nimoy repeated his directing duties, I think it was in William Shatner's contract that if he signed up for Star Trek Four, he would get to direct Star Trek Five. Yeah, it was because there was a pay dispute. Yeah, this is yeah. according to the Wikipedia page mm. for Star Trek Five. There was a pay dispute with William Shatner and the studio, and in order to kind of sweeten the deal, they promised that he would have the chance to direct the next film. It was like an agreement, I think, that had gone back all the way to like nineteen sixty nine. Like between, an equal pay agreement yeah, between, between him and Leonard Nemo. And I imagine because with for Star Trek 4 at least, because I know for Star Trek 3, he wasn't a main player. He was yeah. more like a bit part in Star Trek 3. Mm-hmm. So I'd imagine his salary would have balanced out. But because he's starring and directing Star Trek 4, his pay probably would have been almost double what William Shatner's would have been. And this was obviously something where they'd need to basically balance everything out. Which is, it's strange for William Shatner to argue that point when Leonard Nimoy would be doing so much more on the film. Because yeah. I'm pretty sure Leonard Nimoy has a, does he have a story credit as well for The Voyage Home? Yeah. So it's, it's almost like you're doing more work than me. Yeah. But I still yeah. want the same amount of money for it. Yeah, he's kind of been more active anyway. I mean, he even has a story credit on Star Trek VI, so it's kind of his story, Star mm-hmm. Trek VI, and, and he worked a lot more closely with Maya on those films, like 2, 4, and 6, yeah. and uh, obviously was quite heavily involved in 3 as well. So yeah, it's kind of weird that... But I think it's going back to this agreement that one would get the same as the other, even though the workload yeah. would be completely different. So yeah, they gave him Star Trek V, and yeah, obviously Star Trek IV was a massive hit especially when you look at its budget versus what it actually made. It did really, really well. I mean, even if we look at Star Trek series now in terms of what each film made domestically, Star Trek The Voyage Home is still the third best film financially. And that's taken into account both Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams film, and Star Trek Mm -hmm. Into Darkness, which definitely have inflation on the side. I think if you adjust for inflation, The Voyage Home is still right at the top of that list. Especially when you compare it against their budgets. Yes. Because the budgets for obviously the two J.J. Abrams films are quite high in comparison to what they make well this film has a budget of around about 30 million and the voyage home was actually significantly it's less 21 than million yeah yeah so that's a crazy amount of return yeah. for them i think that's also another interesting thing when talking about star trek 5 is that its budget doesn't match what's on screen whereas no especially in comparison to the two films either side because four and six look so much better yeah but in fact they have much lower budgets than five and uh, well, obviously we'll go into that a little bit later, but yeah, is it is a stark budgetary contrast between those two films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's when we go into a bit later and talk about the different filmmakers involved that kind of explain why. Yes. Yeah. So, 
But yeah, the budget for five was about $33 million. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it does seem kind of odd now that they would give even that amount of money to somebody who'd not really made a film at this scale, especially no. a science fiction film. I think he had done some TV done work. Some TV, he, he'd yeah. even directed a couple of his own episodes of TJ Hooker. Yeah, yeah. But then again, so had Leonard Nimoy. I think Leonard Nimoy was definitely the more accomplished director and mm. more respected as a director as well yeah, than William yeah. Shatner was at this point in his career. Well, obviously, Leonard Nimoy went on to direct other films after the Star yeah. Trek one like this next film was uh, Three Men and a Baby which we have mentioned previously yeah, on the yeah. podcast I think in the year that it came out yeah wasn't it the number one film of 1987 yeah because Inner Space came out that year I think it was yeah it's when we were talking about yeah, Inner Space was, actually, and yeah. yeah it was the number one film of yeah, that year yeah. made a ridiculous amount of money in fact I think it was the Body Wars thing that I think he did directly before doing Star Trek V but yeah, this was something that Shatner worked for two years on. He was really uh, invested in doing this. Yeah, you can't fault him for either ambition or motivation. He was definitely motivated to make this film and he put everything he had into it, really. Mm. And I think when we actually go on to talk about some of the limitations and restrictions that he faced when making the film, some of the things that he came out with were actually admirable that they're as well as they are. Mm. Going back to the making of the film... Yeah, there was a pay dispute, and William Shatner was promised to direct the next film, really, even though I don't think it was official until well after The Voyage Home Mm. came out. And the idea of making a Star Trek film around religion actually originates with him as well. Yeah, yeah. He was inspired by televangelists. Yes. um, That he'd been watching on TV, which I have a quote from him that he describes them as repulsive, strangely horrifying, yet absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And that does translate through Mm. the film as well. You do have this evangelist. Really space Jesus. Yeah, you have a yeah, you have Space Jesus figure who's the bad guy of the film. Yeah. All the way through this production, I guess the studio had concerns about making it with that idea in mind. They were afraid of offending people. Yeah, I think his original premise was Star Trek go on the search to find God, but instead find the devil. Yeah. And yeah, that's basically what the original premise was, and everyone balked at it. It's like, you can't do this. Yeah. And to be honest, it is a pretty out there and specific concept for Star Trek, because I know yeah. Star Trek is really meant to be kind of non-denominational, and religion and stuff doesn't really come into it, as money doesn't come into it either, things like no. that. And obviously issues of race don't come into it either so having something like that which is very on the nose and traditionalist almost is kind of a weird thing to introduce into star trek well i mean that's the thing about star trek is it's very inclusive it it includes everybody Mm. and it's it's very progressive in that way as well whereas this film or at least the original film that william shatner envisioned would have been drawing a line in the sand and Mm. saying that we are on this side you're on that side it would have definitely alienated a large portion of its audience yeah and so i think that the studio was at least right in having some concerns about where he was taking it but also i like the idea that they was trying to do something and trying to take a risk and they was willing to take star trek in a different direction than we'd seen before and i think when we look at the original series there are a few outlandish episodes that push believability to its absolute maximum Mm. but i guess the films that were based on that series have had their own tone it's almost like a separate series in and of itself so that when they do something that is ridiculous and outlandish it stands out a little bit more i think against the backdrop that they've created yeah and yeah, you can't say that he wasn't trying to do something bold because I think, yeah, he was trying to do something that was his own thing and, and set apart from the previous two films. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's interesting to note that this film is the first film since the motion picture where we kind of have the old team back in our own situations because Star Trek's two to four basically form one continuous story. Yes, it's like their own trilogy. Which revolves around Spock 
and Spock as a character doesn't really come back properly until right at the end of Star Trek IV. Uh-huh. So in terms of a setup, this film is the first film in a long, long time since we've had a stable crew again. Yeah. Although it's it's sort of loosely that they're on holiday after the events of four, it's very much a standalone film. Whereas yeah. like obviously two to four, they form a very loose trilogy. Yeah, it's the first film that feels like its own episode in a yeah. way, like yeah. the original series was. Yeah, where many of the stories, in fact, all of the stories were largely unrelated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it is definitely the first film that harkens back to that within this series. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the original idea did come from Shatner, but I also wanted to talk about Gene Roddenberry for a second because you did mention the motion picture that does stand apart from this and it's reported that Gene Roddenberry didn't like the idea for this film either, but he also had a similar idea for the motion yeah. picture that was originally going to have some otherworldly godlike elements and he was asked to strip them away by Paramount, who were yeah. probably rightly afraid that it was going to be pushing too many buttons. Yeah. So it's strange that he's had that, I don't know, that negativity from Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, I think it's just more for the fact that, yeah, I, he tried to do it and couldn't get it through either. So It's like the old warning, the slightly less old, <laughs> that yeah. they've tried it before. I, I hesitate to call William Shatner young at this point, but yeah. it's almost like the old telling the young that we've tried this, don't yeah. go down this road. Although I know from Gene Roddenberry at this time, it sounded like he was pretty rigid about his vision of Star Trek by this point, especially as he was obviously quite an old man at this time. Because I know that when they did Star Trek Six right up until 48 hours before he died he had like a lawsuit he wanted to like take out a quarter of the scenes of star trek 6 because he hated the script of it oh wow even though it's probably one of the strongest of the films he really didn't like what they were doing with it especially in terms of paralleling the cold war yeah in that film which is that film does really quite well but yeah is that I'm- the film with christopher Plummer in it yes yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I do have some vague memory of it maybe yeah, i yeah. have seen it but when i was much younger yeah After this film, I think a lot of the production team were very much questionable from the studio, given its performance. I think people like Gene Roddenberry and obviously Harv Bennett and stuff were very much sidelined and uh, demoted after the failure of this film. But yeah, I think everyone tried steering it in a direction that was slightly more fantastical and, and more in keeping with what Star Trek had been prior to this film. They wanted to push it into being more of an adventure film. Yeah. Than yeah. like a strict theological film. Like, And a, I think in that way it does have the strongest resemblance to the motion picture in that respect. Yeah, it does. Yeah, It's like a budget version of the motion picture. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it does have the strongest resemblance because it's funny, like there are some visuals that are very reminiscent of uh, Vija but just nowhere near as good. Yeah, they have just a slither of the impact really (laughs) and you've mentioned Harv Bennett he did actually work on this film as well Mm. although there was apparently some conflicts between Harv Bennett and Leonard Nimoy apparently Harv Bennett felt like he was alienated by the Star Trek regulars even though he himself had worked on the film for this was his third Third Star Trek film he came on board with the Wrath of Khan and he worked on them as a producer and a writer Mm. in some capacity since then And he actually apparently took some persuading to come back for The Final Frontier because mainly he had conflicts with Leonard Nimoy. I think he felt like he had been overlooked or used by Leonard Nimoy in some way. I'm not sure what happened in the production of The Voyage Home. And yeah, he had done three already. So he kind of thought, oh, I've done my three. Yeah. But he was asked back to do this film. And yeah, he was sort of reluctantly so as well. Well, I think it's kind of obvious that he does have a story credit. So he did work through the story with William Shatner Mm. and the other writer that he brought on who was david is it lot 
Lawson? Is it Laughlin or Loughry? We're gonna go with David Loughry. <laughs> um, Loughry. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, who did actually have the singular screenplay credit yeah, by the time the yeah. film came out. But um, it's almost like he did have a reduced role on this film, even though he does have a producer credit as well. And an on-screen cameo. Oh, who does he appear as? He's the guy that sends them out on the mission. Oh, of course yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I watched the commentary twice, and yeah. they mentioned that both times, and it's gone straight over my head. Because they couldn't hire anyone else to cast. It was so. the first thing they shot, really? apparently. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow, this really is a budget film. Oh, it really is. I mean, even the video screens don't look as good because they couldn't map them. They no. had to actually use back projection. They were in shot, yeah. Yeah, there's quite a lot of in-camera effects in this film, mainly because they literally didn't have the resources to do it any other way. Yeah. So, yeah, this film definitely has a visual look of its own uh, <laughs> from all the other. It reminds me of, have you ever seen those Swedish trailers where people make homemade versions of big blockbuster trailers? <laughs> Uh, with like cardboard cutouts and stuff like that. It's like somebody did a uh, Swedish version of Star Trek. Yeah. And it, this is it. Swedish Star Trek. Yeah. There's one shot in particular, and I think it's the same shot that we're thinking of, but with the Enterprise set against a moon. And it's reflected <laughs> in the windscreen of the shuttlecraft as it's coming in. But it's clearly just like somebody's just holding a picture yeah. up of yeah. just a still image of the Enterprise against the moon. And, and it's funny that... Um, the, the actual effect shot just before that scene is a test shot yeah. that Bran Farron did just to demonstrate what they could do and it's a very simple shot and uh, they left it in because there was nothing else that they could yeah. do and uh, I do remember on the, on the commentary <laughs> William Shatner jokes that it shouldn't be there because the Enterprise moveth not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean even though they had a, a, a budget on this film and had a sizable budget for some weird reason the time constraints were such that they could never really finish anything or everything yeah. had to be rushed when you listen to the commentary pretty much every scene has William Shatner at one point say oh yeah we didn't have much time or money to do this shot. Yeah we did this in 20 minutes Yeah exactly but every single scene had him and his daughter say oh no not much time for this shot. No you're 20 minutes yeah. to set up. It's amazing what you can do with 5 minutes. Yeah. You know I was just astounded that they did not have a single scene in the film where they said oh no we had quite a while to really nail this. Yeah It was all first takes done mm. move on. I don't think there's any like published production schedule of this film. I don't know how many days they actually had to yeah. shoot this I'd imagine they had about 15 <laughs> something like that <laughs> well he was saying like the schedule of this film was like worse than television yeah. which even at the time television you you made an episode every week Yeah. I'd say with this schedule it probably it probably can't be more than what, about 4 or 5 weeks yeah. maybe less than that I'm not quite sure the thing is like that sounds ridiculous but yeah I can see that absolutely being the case because this film and we might as well actually start talking about mm. the film we will discuss some of the making of as we go on but this film is literally, it's a lot of scenes of people stood in rooms talking to each other. Yeah. There's not much in terms of elaborate set pieces. or I, I can only think of one set piece in particular, and that is the attack on Paradise. Yeah, Paradise City, yeah. Paradise City, yeah, or Paradise Lost City. Yeah, yeah. And that's the only one that I can really think of that required like a certain number of extras, which they apparently only had very few and just reused mm. them over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And even on the commentary, he repeatedly criticizes himself for doing TV staging. Yeah. Basically saying I had to do it that way because that was all the time that we had allotted to do those kind of shots. Yeah. So it looked, for me, it seems as if they had the money but they didn't have the time in order to implement that money effectively. It seems like a lot of things that they'd spent 
ended up being wasted because they didn't have the time to really do them justice. Yeah. As such, it felt like more the time was the issue rather than the money that was the issue in the end of the day. Well, I mean, the thing is, we have talked about the Voyage Home costing less, which it did. You mm. said $21 million, um, which is offset against this film's $33 million. Yeah. So this film cost a significant amount more. It cost a third more. Mm. And yet it comes out looking less. And I do think that's because Leonard Nimoy knew how to work within his restrictions. Mm. The restrictions of the budget and especially yeah. by setting it in present day at the time it allowed him to do more with less mm. and he surrounded himself with the right people to get a story that played within those restrictions mm. whereas i think with william shatner he's gone straight out of the gate with these ballsy ideas and this ambition and this is what it's going to be it's going to be this grand film about angels and demons and god and stuff like that and he's had all these grand ideas that play far beyond the reach of the budget and he's surrounded himself with writers that are really playing to that largeness and mm. then they've been forced to just scrape it down to the bare bones and so they've got this big idea that seems so much smaller on this budget because this budget is vastly under what they would need to accomplish that mm. i mean and we do talk about 33 million being a lot of money compared to the voyage home but i mean we're only talking two years later terminator 2 comes out and that's oh, the yeah. first hundred million dollar oh, budgeted yeah. film so star trek being made for 33 million at that time a space movie such as this oh yeah it's not that much money no but i think the main thing with this and you can even contrast it back to something like wrath of khan which had a very much reduced budget in contrast to the motion picture because yeah. i know that was made for like 11 and a half million dollars yeah versus 46 million for the motion picture in 79 yeah and i think the motion picture actually um went over budget by double yeah as well i think yeah. we only allotted 20 million but originally. i think with this film it looks like it's more of a um a lack of technical filmmaking know-how yes. because if you look at Wrath of Khan that's a film that looks a lot more expensive than it actually was because and the same thing with Star Trek 6 because it's the same director <laughs> but him being very clever with how to use the money that mm. he's got and he actually likes having less money because it means that he can be a little bit more creative yes but in Star Trek 2 there's a lot of scenes where the set itself isn't actually the set it's actually just a miniature that's in the foreground and they've cut a hole in the set yeah it's like false perspective yeah like there's a Load of scenes at the beginning of the film where it's literally just a miniature set in the foreground and then there's a hole cut and it's just whatever they've mm. got and it just makes the set looks immediately bigger without them actually having to spend that much money so things like that and i know there's uh, things in six where it's like an infinite backdrop yeah so they didn't have to do any the set design it's just black at the yeah. back and then everything you see at the foreground is is in detail but it means they didn't have to build a great big set it could just all be black drapes yeah so, being ingenious with what you've got to work with and i don't think william shatner had the skills and capability to really implement anything no like that. and i think it actually he shows a naivety when making yeah. this film because yeah. uh, you are right you need a technical hand really you need somebody who is very technically minded who can be creative within the budget and like i say i just think william shatner's ideas were too big and the budget was too small yeah. for yeah yeah, it's like, it's like an A for effort and C for execution. Ex exactly, yeah. Because there seem to be a lot of things when he's talking about the making of the film where it's more like people have assured him that it'll work rather than him going... Like the complete opposite of, say, someone yeah. like James Cameron, where he's like knows their job better than anyone else, and he'll like know this should work better because X and Y Z. Yeah. And uh, William Shatner is really relying on people to do things for him. Like, for example, the the fiberglass rock face. Yeah. He was assured would work, and then also obviously the infamous rock monster. 
which they can only afford one off because I know that he wanted like 10 of them. Yeah, it originally started that he wanted angels and demons to be chasing him at the end and then they had to cut that out for budgetary reasons and he said, okay, we well, can have 10 rock monsters and then that became five rock monsters, then that became one rock monster yeah. and then that was cut from the film. After How yeah. much did he spend on it? $350,000 on the rock monster which four minutes of test footage uh, remains <laughs> which can be watched online i oh, did no, watch it's it before on the dvd podcast. it's on the dvd oh yeah just mean for ease oh, of access online, for anybody yeah, can definitely. just click in star trek rock monster yeah. and it will come up the thing is with the rock monster as an animatronic and a, and a guy in a rubber suit it doesn't look bad at no. all i mean if you lit it well and use it in the right amounts it's like any creature like that if you use it in the right amounts and in the right places it could look decent yeah there's nothing wrong with it i think it's just the fact that he lacked the ability and the know-how because i think he just thought it would do everything like he wanted it to breathe fire yeah and the fact that it was made out of latex is like you couldn't have it breathing fire it'd burn the actor and mm-hmm. also the costume as well and you couldn't quite comprehend why you couldn't do something yeah and like again it's his ambitions far overreached his abilities yeah in order to actually execute what he was seeing in his head yeah and again you're right uh, to use james cameron as a reference i couldn't imagine him sitting back and allowing money to be spent so haphazardly on things that he really had no control over and that is reflected in the commentary once more because William Shatner does speak a lot about when it comes to the special effects that they were completely out of his hands and they just came trickling through and I get the feeling that people almost took him for a ride a little bit on this film mm. like because he is William Shatner he's a new director mm. and probably somewhat of a naive director if judging by this film mm. because he does speak about the special effects like uh, suddenly shots would be just finished and in the film without his approval and he mm. would be sat there going when have I seen this and people say oh no you saw it a couple of months ago and he mm. said that i i didn't see it mm. and again i think he even says in that commentary one of us is wrong and still to this day i don't know who it was and that seems to happen to him a lot on this mm. film that people just simply promised him things and then didn't deliver yeah. and he just continued on with his day almost casting it out of his mind this film needed a director who was going to chase that up yeah and and say where the fuck is my rock monster man yeah <laughs> And why I want to do this? Yeah. And why have you designed it this way? And yeah. It's like because even if you look at the sketches versus what they came up with, it's nothing like the sketches no. at all. It's just that they went and did what they wanted to do. It doesn't look bad. It doesn't look like the sketches, and there definitely could have been a lot more control on that part of it. And it's like he has us left it to someone to do. But at the end of the day, it's like you get this, and obviously because of the time constraint and lack of experience and and technical know how, they've just gone. Doesn't look good. Let's just lose it. And yeah. They've they've just wasted. of a $33 million budget, which is not small change. It's 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 a significant significant amount of money, yeah. And that's just one example where something would have gone. And uh, I kind of get the feeling like this $33 million budget has been wasted somewhat. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, before we go any further on the filmmaking, because we can talk about the filmmaking all day, and we will be doing very soon, um, let's go back to the story as well. Because no matter what we talk about, about what special effects shots work and what doesn't, that really doesn't get to the centre of what the problem is with this film, in my opinion, Mm. which is the script. Yeah. Um, And I think that goes back to the story and an idea at its centre, its core, about the Enterprise crew trying to find God and tackling religion in some way. Mm. And that is kind of where the film falls down. Because, I mean, we have spoke about that. I do personally think you could make a Star Trek film that was adventurous, but that also dabbled in religion. I like the idea of taking a risk, and I can see why a studio kind of balks at the idea, because Mm. it is a risk. But, like you say, you would need a certain amount of money, and you need a certain scope to really explore that idea, and do it justice. Mm. 
And because this film's been so stripped back in terms of story before they've even begun filming, because that idea's been stripped down and whittled down yeah. and chipped at all the way through, I don't actually know what this film is about anymore. No. I couldn't tell you what the character arcs are, and I couldn't tell you what the film is saying, if it is saying anything. And when I listened to the commentary, when William Shatner was talking about, oh, the message that he wanted to end the film with, after they've met this god that turns out to be an alien, mm. it's, it's not god, it's simply seeking escape. It's been imprisoned on this island, yeah. on this uh, planet, and it's seeking the Enterprise to escape. Yeah. What is he saying with any of this? What does a rock monster say about any of that? How does it t- <laughs> into these godlike elements and in the commentary William Shatner says at the end of the film that he wanted it to be about oh well God is inside us all it's inside our hearts that's where it is if we believe in anything like that or what the equivalent is to that if you don't believe in God you know that goodness is in in your heart mm. it's inside you none of that is translated in the film no like no. none of that actually is communicated sorry at all no so what is this film about yeah i think it's also the fact that the ending had to be basically reconstructed from scratch in the edit yeah because everything that they'd shot for that they just basically couldn't use so it ended up being a lot more simplistic than, yeah um there is a real lack of grandness and scope yeah in this film particularly in the second half of the film when it needs to be yeah and there's a lot of like odd excursions and things that don't need to be there in this film like there's the whole subplot with the klingons that doesn't need to be there at all no no it feels like it's from a different film yeah in fact, yeah. In fact it feels like a repeat of star trek 3 but yeah nowhere near as good christopher lloyd klingon yeah, I forgot yeah. What his name is yeah but just like executed nowhere near as well and not with the same kind of finesse there's a real lack of finesse in those klingon scenes actually. and there's a real lack of of and this is a problem for the whole film yeah intensity yeah it, it just kind of meanders along even the klingon scenes even when they're being chased it's just kind of plodding along yeah there is a real lack of uh pacing and intensity like mm-hmm. there's no faster and more intense going on here no no uh, there isn't <laughs> yeah even when they're running around the ship and like uh scotty's breaking them out and there's that the famous scene when he walks into the panel yeah like the way that he's saying the line it feels like he's just had a stroke or something yeah like, he's exhausted he looks exhausted i actually have a little bit like, of trivia about that down james <laughs> you look your like- diabetes sir <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sit down have a yorkie yeah. it's like that's the take that they got <laughs> well in fact he had a real hard time with that scene in particular because there's a lot of pipes running across the floor mm. and in order to have the dolly move in the way that they wanted they had stage hands moving the pipes opening them up and then closing them before <laughs> they came into frame so that the camera could dolly past them yeah and that was really distracting for james Doohan. william shanter says apparently every single time they did a take he'll get halfway through and forget his lines because he was too busy looking at what everybody else was doing behind the camera mm. i mean it is a terrible take mm. and it's quite obviously so and again this is supposed to be our big prison break moment and it simply cuts to them walking along a corridor mm. not really rushing no intensity about it they're just terribly explaining what they need to do next i mean that's where i think it definitely feels more like a, a tv movie yeah because it's a weird mix like there are things that are genuinely like he's going for real cinema yeah and then there's other things that are, are completely just like ridiculously television yeah as well i mean like if you contrast that against say the the opening of the film like the first couple of shots which are actually quite ambitious yeah which i like a mix of lawrence of arabia and yeah. mad max yeah i really like that those scenes are probably some of the strongest in the whole film it's actually. strange because the scenes that 
William Shatner does mention as him being most under the cosh for are some of his better ones, especially yeah. on the location. Because that opening scene with the horse in slow motion yeah. is, again, he said he had 20 minutes to set up and film. Yeah, because I think the, like a truck had broken down and they only had literally that much light left. Yeah. But no, it's done really well and it looks great even now. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of Mad Max in this film, like pretty much all the Paradise City. Yeah. It just looks exactly like the uh, the fueling station in Mad Max It too. does. Just a slightly bigger version of. I do agree with you that the second half is a lot more stilted because it takes a lot of the action and I used the word action with mm. like uh, speech marks around it because there is very little action in this film mm. but when it does move the action within the confines of the Enterprise it does slow down a considerable amount and it becomes mm. very very stale but I would say even the first half with all the location footage which is where the film looks at its best and looks its most cinematic and feels its best as well mm. and that's not saying much but there's still a lack of drive in those mm. early scenes like on a script level I don't know what they are working towards and I don't know it doesn't start with the amount of punch that's needed I think it needed an action beat I mean the thing is you've got a a very long scene in front of a campfire yeah. which consists of row 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 your boat mm-hmm. and uh, it, it just stops the film dead and it goes on for a, I'd say at least seven minutes yeah. of them talking around a campfire but that sets up what is the problem throughout the entirety of the film, which is it is a film of people stood or sat in rooms talking to each other. And although there are parts in which they may move about and which William Shatner might try and push them so he can move the camera, it's just a lot of singular dialogue scenes stitched mm. together. It's a film in which it tells you everything but shows you nothing. Mm. That's a problem on a script level. Yeah. And also just lack of scale in terms of uh, scale of distance Mm -hmm. as well. Because at the end of the day, this is a film called The Final Frontier. Yeah. And it's supposed to be a great distance. Yeah. Uh, We're talking at the the center of the galaxy, I think they say. And we get to it without any incident. Exactly. Yeah. You've got this premise and they do hardly anything with it. Just on a basic script level. I mean, this is not... I'm not sure whether this, again, is stuff that's been like, nope, you can't have this, nope, yeah. you can't have this, nope, you can't have this. Uh, and this is all they've got to work with sort of thing. But uh, this is, which is all the talking scenes. Yeah. Even so, I still feel like the ambitions of what they're going for, like they're so far out of reach of what, what it should be. Yeah. And this is more of a filmmaking thing just in terms of staging the action. Mm-hmm. And just to make a very unfair comparison, I'm going to mention Wrath of Khan mm-hmm. and how that film opens. We open with the in Kobayashi Maru test in which it's demonstrated that there is such thing as a no-win scenario yeah and we see Kirk's response to that which is oh he's the person that cheated the Kobayashi Maru test mm. and that film sets us up for what the entirety of the rest of that film is going to be about it's going to be about Kirk facing the no-win scenario and mm. facing the scenario in which he has to sacrifice something where something is lost in order to gain something else and yeah. he's and it's also about age and death ex- as well exactly yeah, yeah. Death is something that we almost face. It is the final adventure that we almost face. Yeah. And it's set up very well with that little tester scene, isn't it? I mean, yeah. where we, we, we Spock that's doing the Kobayashi mm. Maru test, isn't it? Yeah, and we, we see him die and then Kirk very like brazenly walks in the room in a very cocky way and we see instantly that he's never had to face this hardship of dying as well. And, mm. and that sets up that film perfectly with a nice solid action beat. 
This film starts off with a man on a horse talking to a, a man we don't know on a horse talking to another man we don't know, and then our three main characters sat around a campfire, really. Mm. I mean, there's a slight action rock climbing thing, mm. but it's not interesting enough. We need an action beat to really set up what the rest of this film mm. is. I think they should have took all that dialogue from, from the uh, campfire and whatever that scene means and try, try and translate it into a way that has a little bit of pizzazz, has a little bit of action to it. Because at the end of the day, all of the stuff in Yosemite is superfluous to the, the film. It's there just to reintroduce you to the characters, but it doesn't say anything about the journey that they're about to no. commence on. And it's far too flimsy and, and fluffy and comedic to just really justify itself on screen. Yeah. Especially at that particular point in the film, at least. And yeah, it is a really odd way to start a film is to have that desert scene, which is fine in itself. I mean, its placement is probably wrong. And also for the fact that that character that we are introduced to gets lost throughout the rest of the film anyway. Yeah, he appears several times, but does very little, actually. Because mm. really what you'd want to do is bookend it and have him get through the acceptance and then go to the disillusionment. Yeah. You want to follow it through that character's eyes, really, because you want to see his journey from start to finish. And again, yeah. you just really see the start of it and then that's it, really. Exactly, yeah. It's a really odd transition anyway when you get from that and then you go to the titles and then you can go to the, the rock climbing and it's like, what? The pacings are so off. Yeah, it is. It's like, there's nothing to make you go, yeah, Star Trek. <laughs> Obviously, some Star Trek fan might want to kill me for just doing that. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, that's not what Star Trek's meant to be about. It's about yeah. thoughts and ideas. And <laughs> but even so, as a cinematic Star Trek experience, you want a little bit more gung-ho. That's true. I mean, Star Trek has always been the weightier of the um, sci-fi franchises. I mean, it's always been compared to Star Wars, and it's certainly the weightier, more thoughtful cousin of Star Wars. But I never get where the opinion of Star Trek being boring comes from, or that it should be boring. Because if you watch the original series, there's plenty of adventure and gunfights yeah, and yeah. all sorts of crazy things that happen. I don't get where that idea comes from that yeah. star trek is the most stilted slower cousin of star wars because i do think there is a sense of adventure and a oh, sense definitely. of fun about star I trek i think that's more just because of the fact that it's more known in the television world where their scope is more limited yeah and again films like this which, which <laughs> yeah. betray that because uh, yeah star trek can definitely be an adventure film i feel like maybe some of the modern the newer star trek films kind of they still kind of miss the point of what makes star trek special mm -hmm. uh, they're trying to be a little bit too much like star wars really but I'm yeah see what happens with this new film whether they succeed in sort of capturing the spirit of star trek or not just to uh, contrast this film with the next film the next film opens not with kirk but with sulu witnessing the destruction of a klingon moon like this klingon moon explodes and that is the catalyst for all the events that unfold so you can jam even just from that literally that first opening sequence you can tell it's been handled by someone who knows what they're doing mm -hmm. about the film and, and yeah, just even if you compare it to Gwen's the openings of pretty much all the other Star Trek films, yeah. it's the most pedestrian and it's the least focused it is, out of yeah. all of them. And again, the, the whole film is so unfocused in what its mission statement is, what its through line is. And just before we go any further, I think this is a good time for us to take a break and over to our advert. <laughs> So, uh, an advert from Best Forgotten Movies here, just a little appeal and to keep our fans updated. Oh, wow, a first. Yeah. To help us continue to keep the lights on at Best Forgotten Movies HQ, we're launching a new series of movie commentaries under the name The Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Currently, we have recorded commentaries for Spectre and Alien Resurrection with more to come. 
This content will be available to any of our fans that donate to our Patreon account found in this podcast description and on our Twitter and Facebook pages. So, now back to the show. Okay, and we're back. So, you've heard us talk about the film's story and many of the problems that William Shatner and his crew encountered when making the film, but let's actually start talking about the performances because, I mean, we've we've only briefly touched upon it, really. You mentioned it in the opening, mm. that it's a... Uh, these actors are still giving it their all. These actors embody these characters. Because that, that is something I want to mention, that even though the film pales in comparison to other Star Trek films and the story isn't really that great, the script doesn't really go anywhere or mm. say anything or do anything, yet these are actors that are still giving it their all. I, th- mm. I still think that they really embody who they are. It's hard to tell where the actor ends and the character begins now. They are so kind of synonymous with their roles almost. Yeah, yeah. I even remember Leonard Nimoy was obviously very uncomfortable with that for quite a long time. I remember he released his biography in the mid-70s that was called I Am Not Spock. And then he obviously got used to that later on because his second biography, which was released in the 90s, was called I Am Spock. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, and obviously you had a lot of rigmarole about him leaving uh, Star Trek 2 and then joining again. But uh, I think by this time, everyone was very comfortable in their roles and knew yeah. them inside out. And I think there were things where they would inform what would happen in the script as well. They were like, such and such wouldn't do that because such and such. Yeah, I mean, that is actually it's shown through the way in which um, Leonard Nimoy approached the role because they had to write in different things mm. because he thought that Spock wouldn't act the way he was. And a part of that was Psylocke, the character, who we haven't really spoke about all that much yet. Yeah, is it Cybok? Sorry, Cybok. Did I say Psylocke? Psylocke, yeah. Yeah, Cybok, the character, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because originally he was just meant to be a random character, wasn't he? He was yeah. just like on his own. And yeah, it was partly due to problem that they had with Spock. That they needed to make him Spock's half-brother in order to give Spock some sort of motivation to um, have some sort of an arc and, and some yeah. sort of dilemma. Because the other two were much easier to sort of say, right, no, I'm doing this because I believe this. Whereas because he's a much more logical character, uh, he'd need much more... Um, of an emotional swaying yeah he needed that emotion there so to make him his half brother was something that they needed to do and it kind of works because i like i do like the the idea that this is a, a character that's a vulcan but is and is actually a pure vulcan as opposed to spock being half human but um is actually one that is very unlike a vulcan is the opposite of what the, the vulcan order see as being like a true vulcan Mm-hmm. So no, I do like that aspect. I feel like they play on it a bit too much. Like I said, the whole intro would be completely lost on most general audiences. Yeah. The audiences are very familiar with seeing these actors play these roles as well mm. by this point. And I guess that means, like, going back to something we said earlier, which is that this film doesn't really open with much of a bang. Not much happens in the opening. Although we like a few of the things, that, um, like a few of the shots, maybe mm. the scenes could be moved elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. But... When we do see that very long, seven or eight minute long campfire scene, number one, it's too long, it goes on too long, Shatner indulges himself for too long, but I don't know, there's something really like comforting in seeing these characters together, just sharing stories around a campfire. Yeah, It's yeah. just, is this really the kind of thing that we need to open our films with? It's maybe it's another place in the film, maybe this is where we should end the film like they do. Yeah. But yeah. the only thing I would say is that... Um, I found it really hard to see bones in this opening in the woodland. You might say that I couldn't see the forest for the trees. Oh! <laughs> <Hey>! <laughs> I'm here all week. 
<laughs> oh god <laughs> i've been building up to that oh, for so long you've been planning that for weeks, yeah I've, you? I've got it wrote in my notes so yeah well <laughs> i think the other thing is that we have to uh i think william shatner was commenting on the fact that if yosemite stood here in say 300 years time it would mean that we've done something positive to the planet. But unfortunately, just behind the rock, there is a large amount of deforestation. Oh, uh, I had to put that one as well. You're bringing it back down to earth. Actually, yeah. that was one of the things that... <laughs> so you're doing another one, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was actually one of the things that I first um, noticed when I when I watched this film and it opens on, on Yosemite and I was like, that wouldn't be there now. We would have turned it into a McDonald's car park by then. Yeah. <laughs> the best one is there's a deleted scene because in the deleted scene, it's revealed that Sulu and Chekhov are not actually in Yosemite, as it's kind of insinuated in the theatrical cut, but they're actually in Mount Rushmore. Oh, right. It pans up to a really shitty-looking model of Mount Rushmore, <laughs> and, the, the, and on there, there's like face carved of somebody else, but I don't know who it is. The thing is, when it pans up, the, the Mount Rushmore carving is so shoddily done, that you're just like, oh my god. It's like um, sort of 70s-era Doctor Who, when they've carved something in the rock, and it's just made out of plasterboard or something. Yeah. Like that. but yeah it does look like something out of the simpsons it's hilarious yeah <laughs> i know i think there's something just generally suspect about that segment with a uh, sulu and uh mm-hmm. and check going for a little broke back mountain excursion well it's their little communist yeah. excursion isn't it that's the whole point <laughs> but yeah I, again i do think that these um actors are given their all but the one standout for me that i would say and this is a scene in which the characters the acting and the script comes together to mm. deliver what would be probably the film's only impactful scene i would say yeah, it's the best scene in the whole film it, it really is it's the scene in which bones relives the death of his father and yeah. he's made to relive it it's this pain that he's been keeping inside him because one thing we haven't mentioned really much about the story is that this uh, cybot character his whole religion is built around releasing people's pain yeah and we were speaking about this before we were actually began recording the episode but yeah that doesn't actually go anywhere and that doesn't mean anything on a character level either i think the main thing as i picked up on is the fact that because we were only told about cyborg's origins by spock yeah we don't know what's driving cyborg at all and yeah. what's cyborg's pain no they set him up as he is a vulcan who's very unvulcan like and that is something that is commented on in the film but we're never really given the reason as to why yeah and he goes around absolving people of their pain helping them overcome whatever inner personal turmoil they have but yet we never do find out what is motivating mm. that from him what is his inner turmoil his personal pain mm. that he has overcome with the help of his god yeah if we knew that perhaps we would understand where the character is coming from and what informs him yeah uh, but it, it, again it's just left as one of the many strands in the film it's completely unexplored and it's just left in there because they think oh having a character this way is weighty and yeah. it, it doesn't actually say anything else yeah it's, it has the illusion of saying something and again the only time it ever really comes together is it in this sequence with bones yeah it's one of those great shames really because i feel like this is where the core of the film is and if they'd tapped into it more 
and kept that level all the way through the film, you could have ended up with something really strong and really weighty. Yeah. It's a shame that this is the only sort of bit above the clouds, really. Yeah, in, it is. In the whole film where you go, oh, this is great. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really great scene. It's, I say it's the only scene in which I say that this is Star Trek. This has truly got the characters and the weight right. It's it's yeah. saying something in this moment. I'd say it's, it's the, the bit, bit and also the, the key bit as well as the bit where he goes, good God, don't do this. Yeah. And that's really well played as well. And the bit later on when they're talking about the fact that they found a cure afterwards. And yeah. It's just a really strong little sequence. It is. And I, I guess you're left with a question mark as well over your head as to whether or not anybody else can see this thing that he can see. Yeah. You don't know whether Spock or Kirk can. Yeah. DeForest Kelly plays it perfectly pitch yeah. perfectly mm. and yeah you're right it's that ending that horrible twist that knife in the back and the twist yeah. of he saved his dad from further pain and gave him dignity in death by mm. preventing his suffering and turned off his life support machine mm. and yet a certain amount of time later they actually found a cure for this yeah. thing and oh man it, it hurts to see that it hurts yeah. to see him go through this pain it's the one scene in the film that really works and it's nice as well to even to see something like that because so often in star trek things of a medical nature are fixed so easily yeah it's just like a little like tricorder here a little like (laughs) weird handheld thing there yeah there you're cured and it's like nice having something that's a little bit more um something more that we can relate to we're back to that now as well with the new star trek films especially with the last one into Mm. darkness because that introduces the whole trope which is replayed to death in many blockbusters these days the whole magic blood thing that heals all cures it's always um you gotta get that magic blood (laughs) <laughs> and um like it, there's nothing scientific about it it's just yeah it's just pure laziness <laughs> exactly yeah i think obviously of the new cast i think the person that does come through best even though his character's not completely flashed out is uh lawrence luckenbill as uh cyborg yeah because i think he functions quite well as the film's villain in the fact that he isn't really a villain he's someone uh, who feels morally justified in what he's doing and i get like we were saying before those usually make the best kind of villains anyway because they always think they're right yeah but even so he's not particularly villainous he's not like um immoral or amoral character as such yeah uh, he doesn't like doing what he's doing he, no it's, it's like a, it's a, a means to an end in order to further his quest really yeah i mean uh, when we have the siege on paradise city when kirk and his uh, crew storm the city and mm. try and save david warner and those political figures you've got Mm. the klingon as well and the romulan during that whole sequence you do have cyborg walking out amongst them and shouting saying please no gunfire we wanted this to be peaceful like he didn't want any bloodshed Mm. or any violence or anything and i like that that this is our villain of the piece is somebody that is a pacifist yeah it's unusual it's unique i like it i think that's again another moment in which it just strikes the right chord yeah because like i said he's not really a villain he's more just a misguided character in the film who through circumstance becomes antagonistic it's a shame that we're never let into that yeah yeah we're never let into why really yeah but i do like all the imagery of him being like a crusader and 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 things like that because i know um initially they wanted uh sean connery to be that character and uh they did ask him i think but he was actually busy he'd already signed on to doing indiana jones by that point so that didn't end up happening but then i think 
William Shatner saw Lawrence Luckenbill playing Lyndon B. Johnson on TV one day. Yeah. And was very captivated by his performance as the president and basically got in contact with him immediately after. I don't think anyone else was considered for that part. I think he just thought he had the right kind of charisma yeah to pull off the part and the thing is yeah i think he plays it really well because although he hasn't got the strongest character background wise i feel like he gets like the right amount of pathos Mm -hmm. in there like you can sort of see his point of view yeah and yeah he can see why people would want to follow him because he has that sort of level of charisma well (laughs) going back to the whole sean connery thing i do Mm. have a piece of trivia on that but the religion that Cyborg actually is part of, the god that he worships, is called Shakari. Yeah. Which <laughs> is actually based on the name Sean Connery. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like say who they wanted yeah, for that role right. and although sean connery declined the offer they still kept the shakari um, <laughs> who knew that god would have been named after sean connery i know william shatner was a bit resistant to actually having it as a name of a planet as well i think he wanted it to be uh yeah. more of a literal eden and i think he was kind of forced into making it something a little bit more uh, grounded and tangible but I think for me, it works better as a thing because at the end of the day, I do actually like the idea that instead of it being God or something like that, it's literally just an alien posing as God in order to escape. Yeah, it's just a shame that it doesn't go any further than that or explore what this alien is because by the end of the, the film, I almost said episode, it's just like... <laughs> it is like an episode. Yeah, it though. is. But it's like we don't get to know what this God is other than the fact that it's an alien posing as a God that's been locked in this planet like yeah. a prisoner for years. What did it do? Yeah. And yeah. what is left? it to believe not that it is god but that it can pose as god or anything like that yeah and how is cyborg connected with it yeah how is it communicated yeah because it's almost like he's, he's given cyborg there. visions and that's what's leading cyborg has been to doing for many many years like, yeah he's been planning this for a long long time so how did they come into contact and uh, when, this, when did he start is, there's so much potential in this story that they just don't tap into at there all. is totally because at the end of the day when they get here they spend the whole film is leading up to this encounter and it's all done and dusted within say three or four minutes that's the thing and we will talk about the roger ebert review later but one of the things that he does mention in a review that i haven't actually gotten the write-up is that that there was a scene in this film which genuinely gave him goosebumps and thought gosh we're going to see something now we're really going to see something we haven't seen in star trek before and it's the moment that they enter that great barrier in space Mm. and they're about to go through to the other side to this planet's surface where this god apparently is and Roger Ebert said he was sat there and and he thought to himself oh my gosh I don't know what's going to happen anything could be on this (laughs) on the other side of this barrier it turns out it's just pretty much like Californian desert painted a slight purplish tinge in (laughs) in post-production and you've got this Terry Gilliam-esque floating head of god yeah it is so disappointing that that's what it adds up to and there is so much potential in the ideas presented in the film I like the idea of Cybok being somebody who's being exploited through mm. religion. And I like the idea that there could be good sides to religion and bad sides. Mm. And religion can be used for good and it can be used for evil. And it seems that at some point that all these things was going to be what the film was about. Mm. And all of that was lost some yeah. point in the making. But even like the fact that it's, it's the film's title as well, they get to the frontier and they, they pass through it so easily. And yeah. Like, why isn't that difficult? Yeah. Like, why isn't the, the ship like almost destroyed even getting through it? It'd just be the, the natural thing to do and, and to have some sort of drama at that point. But no, there's no hard work done in this oh. film at all. And there are no stakes there's either. There's no stakes at all. Because why do we care if this field of energy is released from this planet or not 
Also, we know is it's posing as a god, and it's not. It, it has been a prisoner because it did something bad. We don't know what. What terrible thing's going to happen if it does get to the Starship Enterprise and escape? Are we ever told? No, it just wants the Starship. That's it. Yeah, and then we get that infamous line, which what is, does what does need God need in a Starship? Yeah. Which, I, 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 I like, like that I line. Like that line. I like yeah. that line. It often gets a lot of um, ridicule, but I like that line. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, from that moment onwards, it just turns into... It reminds me of, like, a uh, Terry Gilliam cartoon because it's just, <laughs> like, a, a floating head of God that can shoot lasers out of yeah. its eyes. And he's got a dodgy beard as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's like and, Father Christmas. And they overcome it so easily. They just blow it up. It's like, why couldn't they have had a sequence where it actually got onto the Enterprise and then he yeah. could jettison it in some... There's so much potential in this story. Mm-hmm. It really is. and But it's executed in the most lumpen way possible. And I'm not sure that's because of budget or just pure lack of vision, really. Yeah, because I do agree with you in that this final frontier is over so quickly, when really that should have been at least the end of Act 2 moment. And you should have had a whole chunk, a good chunk of the film, a good like half an hour, maybe even half the film of exploring Mm. what happens beyond meeting this creature, this Mm. god exploring the ideas of where it could go you know what destruction it could wreak if it did or what goodness it could bring if it could no it's just um the film's not interested in any of that unfortunately because at the end of the day with the motion picture whether you like it or not they do spend an awful lot of time with vija you do get a sense of what vija is and its goals and its dreams and Mm -hmm. its ambitions even as a physical embodiment of that character on the Mm. starship enterprise throughout the film so we get an idea of vija as a character yeah this character at the end of this film this god is it's a sketch of a character and yeah it's so anticlimactic i mean not that anything is particularly brilliant leading up to it anyway but yeah apart from that one uh bone sequence really but at the same time that the thing that kind of holds it together is lawrence Luckenbill's performance because he's kind of giving it his all and his genuine belief that everything's there is kind of the only thing that's pulling it all together yeah and that aspect of the film even though he kind of is acting very strongly on a sinking ship as such i've no idea how he defeats the god alien thing no (laughs) or when it's even established that he could enter the force field yeah Uh, to feel his pain yeah (laughs) yeah all he does is i mean this is the film's like grand finale and it ends with cyborg simply walking through a force field and grappling with well it's pretty much himself yeah a vision of himself and then that's it that's how he overcomes god in some way Mm -hmm. because then he kind of like (laughs) self-destructs i i just i don't get it no there's nothing clever in the way in which they overcome it it's not like um they use its own thinking against them or anything like that like so many so many episodes <laughs> so many episodes of star trek and with captain kirk posing some kind of like moral question <laughs> yeah some either like moral dilemma or some paradox to some computer system or artificial intelligence and it simply blows up <laughs> contemplating it I would have taken that. Yeah. I would have taken that over what happens in this film. Because at the end of the day, it's like having that, but he gives him a hug instead and that blows up. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's like, I embrace you, boom. <laughs> and then it starts howling like a dog. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's not the finest moment in Star Trek not history. Really, no. However, one of the things that is fine in this film, speaking about the filmmaking for a moment... I would say it's the music. Oh, yeah. And it's Jerry Goldsmith. Yep. 
I think it's a serviceable Jerry Goldsmith score, which means it's much better than half the stuff out there. Yeah, it's better than average. Yeah, exactly. But it, it uses a lot of themes that Jerry Goldsmith had already established. I don't yeah. think it actually brings anything new to the table. No. So in that way, it's no. serviceable, but it still comes across as really strong anyway, really great. And it does feel like there's not loads of music in the film. It no. does feel like they got Jerry Goldsmith for a budget price. Yes. And he did literally yeah. like half an hour's worth of new music. And yeah, then yeah. Just reuse it like that's your score uh, yeah and like so it does feel like very bare i mean the whole film feels very bare in places anyway and i don't think he's ever really provided with a moment to truly shine no and imagine just looking at this film going oh this is not star trek the motion picture <laughs> yeah because <laughs> obviously i know in the motion picture you were scoring to basically large areas of black but in terms of like insert scene here yeah because it's very slow paced he had to fill it with music and the score for motion picture is if you just listen to it on its own it's very much like a, a large scale symphony it's a really just nice piece of music just to listen to on its own. And that's part of the reason why people liken it to 2001 A Space Odyssey so much. Yeah. I mean, that Star Trek The Motion Picture is a film that is very visibly inspired by oh, yeah. 2001 A Space Odyssey, but that's even reflected in the music because it does have this classic feel to it. It's like, like you say, it is listening to it like a And symphony. it has an overture as well. Yeah, at the exactly. Of the film. Yeah. So yeah, it really just feels like 2001, yeah. like they're trying to repeat the thing of having a roadshow style picture. Yeah, really. they're chasing that same legitimacy. Yeah. Personally, I'm one of the, I guess, few people that no, think that I, they I actually really like attain. The, I really like the ambition of the motion picture yeah. and what they try and do with it. But yeah, it's kind of, in a weird way, it's let down, not in the same way as such, but it's let down a little bit in its blandness, you know, like in terms of yeah. the costume design and the set design. And uh, Star Trek V suffers in the same way. Yeah. In a weird way, it goes back to some of those colour schemes as well, which is one of the reasons why I think it looks so bland. Yeah. Which they got away from it with Star Trek 2 to 4, and they seem to slightly return turn to with star trek 5 like there's those costumes that they wear when they're in the brig yeah which are like those beige yes they're almost like army jumpers aren't they with mm-hmm. the beige and because they're almost the same color of the walls yeah it makes the whole thing look so bland because the beauty of having those red tunics those dark burgundy tunics that they stood out from the background whereas when yeah. they're wearing stuff like that it really makes them just blend into the background and the whole image looks so bland and gray yeah i don't know why they've took so much color out of the film because mm. Star Trek as a series is a colourful one. Each character has their own colour and the sets are vibrant and alive. I I don't know where that thought came to kind of blandify everything as, Mm. as a way to... Uh, legitimize it because I, I think it takes away from the identity to do yeah. that because Star Trek is something that should be colourful and that's something that they've got back to now in a positive way in a real positive way yeah. Star Trek yeah. as a series is colourful the universe in Star Trek is now colourful once more mm. and uh, I love that about the new series uh, I think the next thing we need to talk about is obviously we talked about some of the positives in the casting but then we can talk about some of the uh, the black holes yeah. in the film <laughs> is regarding is, is casting but not um ill-intentioned it's just that the fact that the characters don't do anything yeah and there's, there's two main angles for that you've got the characters of all these like you've got these ambassadors yeah who are on this nimbus three who are like the diplomats and it sets the characters up as being something at the start and then they just come to completely nothing at the end and you've got that side and then you've also got the the, the klingon subplot as well which is very sort of light 
<laughs> yeah, to say the least. It's just there to fill a void, really. Yeah, it's there to, box. Again, it doesn't actually say anything. It doesn't add yeah. to the grander idea or the grander themes. It doesn't really provide anything like that. And it's over with so quickly yeah. as well. Like, uh, they kind of brush it under the carpet at the end. Yeah. It doesn't actually add up to anything. But, um, yeah, I don't know what the thinking is behind casting, like, David Warner, somebody who, uh, even at that time, instantly recognisable. Yeah. By casting him in that role, you do think that that character is going to go somewhere, oh, and yeah, these characters are going to mean something, but... It's a big nothing. Yeah. The moment Kirk actually gets to the planet and finds out that... I mean, even before then, they've already disappeared within the film. And, and even the Romulan woman character, the way that she introduces herself in the film, you think she's going to be some big character? Yeah, she's almost introduced with a little bit of fanfare, almost. Yeah. Like, say, she gets an entrance. Is As the film progresses, you realise how half-baked that whole aspect of the film is. I mean, to be honest, the place of Paradise City is executed, and what people are doing on it, and the whole function of that planet is so ridiculously half-baked. Because as soon as we get off it, the whole thing's thrown away anyway. Yeah. Because it really is like a mix between Mad Max and a poor man's Mos Eisley. <laughs> yeah, it is. And also that chick with three boobs. Yeah. You <laughs> mentioned to me before that it's uh, it's strange that this film came out the same year that Total Recall did. Yeah. It's Total Recall as a film with, um, I imagine, a similarly modest budget that actually did. It was the best film of that year, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. Didn't Total Recall come out just the start of 90? 90, But yeah. it was made in 89. So yeah. they're similar era and uh, I think they got away with something because they made the film at Cherubusco with Total Recall so they probably saved a bit of money somewhere Yeah, but yeah you've got someone who knows what they're doing in terms of filmmaking Yeah. so I'd imagine I think Total Recall's budget if you discount Arnold Schwarzenegger's fee <laughs> for that film probably would have been roughly around the same as if not less than Star Trek 5 Yeah. and it does a lot more with it and it has such a grander scale and scope and obviously much better model effects <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> You know what the most Total Recall-y bit in that whole scene is? Is that little advert that's on the TV, that guy talking about Paradise City. That feels very Paul Verhoeven. I, I, I noticed that when I first watched it. It, it does feel like it, it yeah. conjured that image well, in my mind. Is- but yeah, I mean, the, going back to those characters, you are right, they don't actually um, go anywhere. Mm. And it's a shame, because, like, again, I feel that this film wastes a name like David Warner. Yeah, absolutely, because like, once he's introduced... He gets very little screen time, and every other little bit of dialogue he's got to do is just interstitial. Yeah. There's nothing uh, from a plot point that he's got to contribute. Yeah. Other than the fact that they were just the hostages that he needed to get the starship there. And then as soon as that's been established and they've got past that, that whole aspect of the story is just thrown away. Because even them as hostages is brushed aside shortly after, because doesn't Cybok actually convert Oh, them? they're all converted, yeah. Yeah, so. and we don't actually get to see any of that. And there's no tension, like, there's no, is anyone going to crack yeah they're going to revert back to how they were and then realize what they were doing and then join up with kirk and everything and Mm -hmm. you needed more conflict on the ship yeah in fact that whole just aspect of the film about him converting people like say although it leads to the film's strongest scene with um, bones and his father it's still altogether wishy-washy you never really get the feeling that anybody's truly committed to it I like the idea of brainwashing some members of the crew to follow Cybok in such a way that they would turn against Kirk if he threatened Cybok. Yeah. Again, that's something that we see in the original series time and time again. You know, we always see something infiltrate a crew member's mind or something like that mm. or convince him to do something that he wouldn't otherwise do. That's a very Star Trekian type trope. I don't mind seeing it in films. It just, again, it just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't no. add to anything. No. Nobody has any guilt yeah. over doing 
something they wouldn't normally do. <laughs> no. And there's no consequences to that either. That, that's what I was searching for. Yeah, there mm. are no consequences. And then, yeah, the other flip side of that is the Klingon subplot where there's this young Klingon warrior that's after Kirk or a starship or something. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what he's after. And this Kla character... That's similarly half-baked to that. It's been introduced because we need to have the Klingons in there, very much in like almost like in the Doctor Who world, we need to have the Daleks in there for whatever reason. But And it's there to introduce some sort of chase element. But there's no chase. Yeah. Like, there's no stakes, there's no tension in that no. chase. And also the resolution of that plot is... I don't buy it. I just don't buy it at <laughs> no. all. I mean, even when we're watching, like, Jess was like, the Klingons wouldn't let them do that. No. <laughs> It's like, no. it totally undermines their threat. Like you say, even the way that he is overcome, he's almost like um, told off like a naughty schoolboy in yeah. front of Kirk. I apologise. Yeah, and it's instantly like, this is not right. Yeah. You get a feeling that they've actually misunderstood their own law at this point. I mean, the thing is, like, the, the film after deals with that in such a better way. Yeah. And also gives David Warner a much better part, because David Warner oh, is he uh, return? He's in Star Trek twice, playing two completely different characters. Oh, oh right. And he makes so much more of an impact. He has about the same amount of screen time in Star Trek Six, but because what he's actually playing is more central to the plot and more integral, mm-hmm. and the whole script is a much better script, he's more memorable. Is he playing a Klingon? He's playing a Klingon, So he yeah. is under makeup, so that's how they um, yeah, yeah. excuse that, him playing two separate characters and also, in two consecutive it doesn't films. Really ma- it doesn't matter at all, because no. he's a much better character. Yeah. I think it was almost like, oh, we wasted David Warner last time, let's use him again in a more positive <laughs> way. <laughs> Because actually, his character is literally one of the most important... Even though he's got very little screen time, he's one of the most important characters in the whole film. Yeah. So uh, I think that was almost like to make up to the fact that they botched his appearance in Star Trek V. Yeah. Because <laughs> his character just may as well not be there. Yeah. But the, that whole resolution is so flimsy. And like I say, they deal with the whole aspects of the Klingons far better in other films. Probably say this is probably the Klingons' worst usage in the whole of the series, actually, I'd say. Yeah, I think I would agree with you. I'd say that there's perhaps an argument that could be made for the not-so-stellar look of the Klingons in Star Trek Into Darkness. Oh, but yeah, yeah. They still act like what Klingons. What the fact they look exactly like the Romulans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with a little bit of a ridge. <laughs> yeah. I was very disappointed with that. I really was. I thought that they really downplayed their uniqueness. They kind of refine them to a point they no longer resemble Klingons. And I think it's one of those things as well with design aspects like that because the Klingons have been refined, especially in the 90s, to a point where they were so recognisable. Yeah. Why not just use that? It's one of those things where if it ain't broke, don't don't fix it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, it was the same when they did the Romulans in the first Star Trek film. I mean, they're a little bit more resemblant to the Romulans in the series, but there's nothing wrong with that design. Mm -hmm. Stop trying to change things just for the sake of it, because it it messes up continuity anyway. Yeah. Uh, Especially when they're trying to be, like, true to the continuity. It's the same thing with the Khan thing. I mean, like, there was no point him being Khan, because it didn't look anything like or resemble anything like the character of Khan. Yeah, and In the TV series or the film. This is a conversation to have on another day. Yep, it is. I think Star Trek into darkness will be most certainly in my opinion a film that will be covered if not on this podcast on other podcasts like it yeah or in a commentary maybe you'll hear from us on uh, the popcorn digest (laughs) covering star trek into darkness in the near future Mm -hmm. (laughs) but yeah there's so many little half-baked things and wasted characters wasted ideas in this film and I said there's only a couple of moments in the whole film where it really sparks into life yeah and the rest of it yeah it's just a big nothing <laughs> it is it is I think the other thing just as a as a filmmaking point that we have to really add and it's probably one of the most obvious things in the whole film in terms of it just not looking as good 
as the uh, the other films because obviously there's there are issues with the direction as as a whole in the fact that Shatner wasn't very experienced as a film director and I don't think he possessed maybe some of the skills needed to make this kind of film. Mm-hmm. But the main issue here is um, the fact that the effects are really bad for the time. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of uh, Superman 4 level effects here. Yes, they really are. I mean, I mentioned a couple before as well, but yeah. there are reasons why. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not 100% sure why there was seen to be some sort of cost reason problem. Yeah. But I don't think that's the real issue. I think it's more the fact that ILM, who'd done the effects for the previous three films, yeah. were just too busy. Like, their infrastructure had been overwhelmed. I think they were doing Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, and, which is a very effective film. Yeah, and they were doing Indiana Jones and probably a couple of other things at the time yeah. as well. And I think that them as an effects company, just they couldn't take anything else on at the time. Yeah. So they had to use someone else. And I think they were looking around at different people and I just feel like there wasn't anyone else around at the time to do anything of that level. Well, even to harken back to something I said earlier, but one of the things that that Shatner mentions in the commentary is that because he didn't have ILM or the resources of ILM at his disposal, he did have to look at other special effects houses and he seemed, I wouldn't say down about it, but he's very much aware of what Star Trek V is and what he learned making it. Yeah. But the many special effects houses promised him the world, yeah. but failed to deliver. I think it's more that aspect of like, oh, Leonard got all this. Why, yeah. why didn't I get that? Uh, why didn't I get the support and all yeah. these resources when it came to my turn? And I think that just adds fuel to the fire of William Shatner being somewhat naive in his approach to yeah. this film and lacking the experience. Yeah, because there's some really dodgy stuff. I'd say not even um, just as a model front there. I feel like there's some in-camera physical effects that are dodgy. I mean, there's some really dodgy stuff at the beginning of the film. I mean, that rather fake-looking uh, rock wall that they oh, he was yeah. assured would look genuine. <laughs> but you can even see where the fucking struts are. There's, yep. like, they don't even hide it where no. the, the, the separation of the plates are. And where you can see the little rods holding Leonard Nimoy up. Mm-hmm. You can see the shadow of it. Yeah. And you can see... And you can see the rope attached to William Shatner when, when he falls falling, down the yeah. cliff face. And also just like when the shuttle is going down, you can feel like you can see the arm almost like wobble as it's going down. <laughs> there's there's a load of wobbly sets as well on this film. Like, you know, that whole vent shaft? Yeah. When they're climbing up it, you can see the, the slats like wobbling. Yeah. I, there was a couple of parts as well where people bumped into the set walls and they shook. And that's a really, like, that's a TV thing. Yeah. You know. I mean, the special effects shots are not great, but I would say that some of the location stuff and the way in which William Shatner and his cinematographer, Andrew Laszlo, who we've covered mm-hmm. before on this podcast, the way in which he moves his camera, I would say is actually more cinematic. This is probably going to come down the wrong way, but I think The Voyage Home kind of looks a little bit like a TV movie at times. Oh, yeah, yeah. And again, that's because of its setting, one it's set in present day San Francisco. And I guess Leonard Nimoy's playing within his own limitations. Yeah. I would say it doesn't well, it's have like you're saying crazy before, amounts. They're basically doing Star Trek does escape from the planet of the apes. Yes, it's exactly. Very, very similar yeah. situation. It's, it's almost like a direct lift of that film yeah. but without the really downbeat ending. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and I would say at times the final frontier, just in terms of its camera work, Shatner is trying for something that looks more cinematic. I don't think it pays off, mm. but I'd say that he's definitely, from a director's point of view, his vision is 
is more cinematic than what Nimoy's was. But I think Nimoy accomplishes more because he's a better director, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, Because I think even the documentary, they always say, like, uh, Bill thinks big. Yeah. And it's like, like I was saying before, his ambitions are far outreaching. And it's almost like in those big ideas, he's failed to look at all the nitty gritty, all the, all the yes, small details. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I feel like Leonard Nimoy's like the opposite. He's looked at all the small details, but not come up with anything really big. But it's yeah. anything that is small, it's fairly solid. Yeah. But unfortunately, like, you can have these big ideas, but because he's not looked at any of those things, they, they just come off as half-baked. That's the best summation I can find for this film. It's so half-baked. And it's it a, is. A big placeholder. And the fact that because they couldn't get the same effects company and to add insult to injury, they could get ILM back for Star Trek VI. <laughs> and obviously all the films that followed. Yeah. It's almost like, damn you. Because it, it basically... Because the, the effects on model work in the motion picture, even though it wasn't done by ILM, is very, very good for the time and mm-hmm. still holds up pretty much today as a very good uh, large-scale model work film. It kind of lets the side down. It's kind of on on its own. Yeah. You can only but feel for William Shatner the fact that he was yeah. dealt with that. And uh, yes, yeah, it's the one that just looks the shoddiest of all of the films. It is. And I, I do get the feeling, again, he was given the least amount of time to make his film. Mm. Everything was rushed. Everything fell apart. And um, he didn't have the same resources as people did around him. He mm. may have had more money, but I don't think that actually had made up for anything considering, I say this with no offense, but he was a lesser filmmaker. Yeah. A lesser experienced filmmaker. Yeah. I think we're moving towards wrapping up on this yeah, film now. Yeah. There's very little else to say, but to kind of sum it up, I, I think there is an admirable idea at the centre of this film. And instead, what we're left with, because it's been whittled down so far, we're left with a film that is spreads what little it has incredibly thin. It doesn't leave a taste. Well, the only taste it leaves is yeah. a bad taste. They didn't have the foresight and expertise and budget to afford a full butter spread. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But they had, to, this is, they had to make do with netto spread yeah. on uh, netto bread. I can't believe it's not dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other supermarkets are available. But um, it's just when you watch, like, if you can watch these films in sequence or even just watch it on its own, when you if you know the film's either side of it or the films that it's in a series with, it's just a placeholder. Yeah. It's ironic as well because the, obviously given the film's title and everything that it was originally intended as being the final adventure of the original cast mm-hmm. and it's almost like they made the other film just because oh no we can't end it like that. No, no. <laughs> Which kind of makes a little bit of mocker of its name but calling it the final frontier. It's like oh no there's another one after that. Yeah, I mean <laughs> That, that is such a home run of yeah. a Star Trek name that it, it really does deserve so much more. It's almost like the gull of yeah. calling it the, film the almost, final frontier. Yeah, the film betrays its title. Yeah. Because you, when you think, ah, oh, Star Trek V, the final frontier. Yeah, this, this is, is gonna it. going to be great. This is it. This is the pinnacle of the Star Trek series. Yeah, and it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's just uh, not logical. No. Okay, so now that we've battled with this starship, it's time for us to ask just how has this film being forgotten. Well, perhaps there are clues in the stats and facts. First up, what did the critics think of Star Trek V? So, critically, yep. the Rotten Tomatoes score on this film is a whopping 21%. Ooh. And that's with an average rating of 4 out of 10. Yeah. Which I think is fair. Yeah, I'd say so that's given fair. Given yeah. the level of failure versus ambition. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. fairly appropriate. And the consensus is 
filled with dull action sequences and an underdeveloped storyline, this fifth Trek movie is probably the worst of the series. And I'd say out, out of the original cast films, I'd definitely say that's true. Yeah, I um, nothing to disagree with there. Although I'd say out of the whole Star Trek series as films, I don't I like less than this one because I like this one purely for nostalgic value. <laughs> well, I actually um, I actually remembered just a moment ago why I don't think I've ever watched The Next Generation and what always turned me off it. And that was because my only experience with the Next Generation series was the film Star Trek Generation. Oh, really? And that, for me, like, even when I watched it when it first came out, I thought it was awful. Yeah, yeah. I think First Contact is a little better. That's probably the best of the new, yeah. the Next Generation films, but I'd say that's the other ones around it aren't particularly great. I mean, I like Generations from a purely nostalgic value because I did go and see it at the cinema. And I do like the idea of obviously having Kirk and Picard team up. And I remember at the time it was really cool, but then obviously looking back on it, you can see how flimsy and... and yeah rubbish it is really yeah i agree with you there is definitely um something exciting in seeing mm. picard and kirk together but also i think that they killed off kirk in such a shitty way <laughs> in such a shitty way that and the series hasn't recovered from it in terms of captain kirk no. they've bent over backwards to try and include william shatner in some way but because that end is so final yeah but it's so bad <laughs> but yeah in terms of the other reviews on this what we've got here we've got the roger ebert review yeah and like you were saying before he gave the film two out of four and he says, Star Trek V is pretty much of a mess. A movie that betrays all signs of having gone into production at a point where the script doctoring should have begun in earnest. There is no clear line from the beginning of the movie to the end. Yeah. Not much danger. No characters to really care about. Little suspense. An interesting or incomprehensible villains. And a great deal of small talk and pointless dead ends. Yeah. Of all of the Star Trek movies, this is the worst. <laughs> and he's, he couldn't be more right. It is. And then Empire, which is uh, William Thomas writing for Empire at this time. Uh, he gave the film two out of five. So even worse than Roger Ebert. So I think Roger Ebert was actually quite generous with his uh, score. Yeah, considering what his write-up is. Uh, yeah. He's quite generous in a yeah. score, yeah. And Empire right? there is something to be said for a film that lists among its technical credits a Klingon dialogue consultant. <laughs> but, much, but much as it grieves a serious Trekkie to say it, The Final Frontier is the biggest disappointment since Spock Blue is cool with that awful woman in the Cloud Miners episode. <laughs> <laughs> Following the unusual critical apparition of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and no doubt envying Leonard Nimoy his successful transition into directing, William Shatner took over directorial duty for The Final Frontier. In that respect, he has not embarrassed himself. In originating the story, however, he has. <laughs> yeah, two out of five seems about fair to me as well. It's hard to disagree with anything they're saying. Yeah, and the the IMDb score is actually a little bit higher, and I'm pretty sure this has got some sort of nostalgic uh, it has to have, aspects yeah. uh, going on there. That's actually 5.4 out of 10. I feel like franchise films, unless they're spin-offs that have unrelated actors or yeah, characters yeah. they usually fare better than they would if they were just simply of on their own yeah so i think this um rides on again the nostalgia and uh, its franchise a little bit more i think had it been on its own you'd be looking at something that would be rated in the fours yeah so moving on to the numbers and um, this one's actually quite interesting because uh, again as we've mentioned previously star trek 5 the final frontier had a budget of 33 million mm -hmm. and i was expecting something that was more of a bomb than what it was because actually domestically it made 52 million dollars and that's after an opening weekend of 17 million i think that's one of its highest opening weekends as well 
Yes, which I've always heard of this film bombing. Now, we only see just how low that is when we actually compare it to other Star Trek films, which I will be doing very and shortly. And also, I think overall the film only made about $63 million Yeah, worldwide. Worldwide, so worldwide yeah. takings were very low. Yeah, so internationally, yeah, it yeah. did just bomb out of yeah. the water. That's the thing with Star Trek. It's never been able to transition internationally the same way that Star Wars has been mm. able to. And that's always been one of the things that they've mentioned about Star Trek. Is It's a very strong series in America, but not much elsewhere. And we still see that today. a little bit in Britain. I think Britain's probably yeah. the next best place. I but... often feel like we are lumped in with American audiences yeah, yeah. when they approach it. But yeah, I think uh, yeah, outside of Britain, it's not fared as well. Which is ironic, seen as how all-encompassing and universal the series is meant to be, how it hasn't really mm-hmm. captured the imagination of other countries. Yeah, because even the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, that was a massive massive success in america yeah. i made 300 million but i think overall it only made 430 that's an underperformance for oh, a yeah, film definitely. overseas that's massively underperforming we are seeing films at the moment being propped up by their overseas performances mm. but i mean we've seen it recently with warcraft yeah so star trek opened to number one with 17 million Mm-hmm. In second place in its uh, third week is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which made sixty million in its second week, so only a million less. Wow! Yeah, number three was David. Po- uh, David, oh my god, my head. <laughs> number three was Dead Poet Society. <laughs> David Poet Society. <laughs> David's Poet Society. Uh, was an exciting film. Number four was See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and it's fifth oh, that, week that of release. Classic. Yeah, Richard Pryor. G, hey, I G grew Wilder. up watching that film. <laughs> it's my dad and my dad's favorite films. And number five was Feel the Dreams, and it's eighth week. I think that's a film that only gets talked about in America. I love Feel the Dreams. Yeah. Feel the Dreams is a film. I do not follow baseball whatsoever, but yeah. Feel the Dreams is a film that makes me cry. Yeah. Number six was No Holds Barred. Brilliant. <laughs> Number seven was Roadhouse. Oh, Patrick Swayze, yeah. Yeah. Are they remaking that or have they remade it already? I, I'm uh, sure they're, they're, they're remaking it with uh, Ronda Rousey, the UFC fighter, in the <laughs> Patrick Swayze role. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> she fucked guys like us in prison. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, that's a line. I've just bastardized the line wow. from Roadhouse, yeah. Number eight was Renegades. Never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Number nine was Pet Cemetery in its eighth week, and it made 50 million. And number 10 was K9. Wow. In its seventh week of release. So anyway, we get an idea of the weekend. It's um, it's actually a tough weekend, I would say, with mm. Indiana Jones even in its third week, Field of Dreams as well. Roadhouse has gone on to be a cult classic. It's a tough weekend, I'd say, yeah. for Star Trek to release. And I think it just uh, shows actually how um, kind of out of place and probably a little dated it was against yeah. that backdrop. But I say yeah, it's one of the highest opening weekends they ever had for a Trek film. And so I think maybe at the time originally they were thought, oh, we've got a hit on our hands. And imagine the drop-off must have been quite massive. It was. I mean, if we look at where the final frontier actually ended up settling in the Star Trek like hierarchy, mm. uh, just in terms of box office performance, actually ended up second to last. Yeah, just in front of Nemesis. Just in front of Nemesis yeah. as well. Because Nemesis basically just made back its budget, I think, was it? Yeah. I think that was made for $60 million and mm-hmm. ended up making 63 And I think actually some Final Fantasy like $67 million or something like that. I imagine overall, yeah. It's very close. It's in the 60s anyway. Yeah. But I'm sure they were aiming for $70 million plus. Because yeah. I think they even talk about that in the, in the documentary about how film companies like to play like blackjack with their films and they want to double their money. And obviously now mm-hmm. they want to do more than that. Yeah, of uh, course. Really. Yeah. I think Paramount are being a little <laughs> bit modest there, but it didn't really uh, 
set the world alight. No, it didn't. Well, it made enough that they would chase a sequel. I think the main reason they made the sequel, one, to right the wrongs of this film, but then also because it was a 25th anniversary film. Ah, right, that makes sense. Yeah, they wanted a, a proper film to close the original cast with. Well, it made 74 million after opening for 18 million, so it still made 25 million more. And that and that's just domestic? That's just domestic, yeah. yeah. So it made about, I think it made 96 million overall. Yeah, so there we go. But like when you compare it to The Voyage Home, I'm pretty sure that made like 121 or something like that overall. Yeah. So yeah, there's a really big drop off from The Voyage Home, with literally half mm-hmm. of what that made for almost twice the budget. I'll tell you what the funny thing is as well, like if you watch on the special edition DVD, there is the, the Harv Bennett sales pitch from the film to the Paramount executives. And it's so funny how he's talking about how uh, Statue 5 is the biggest film yet. And it's the best one, in my opinion. And uh, it's going to be great. And we're going to like do great business with this film. And it's just like, oh, you don't know. You don't know. And he's like, you're saying that just because you, you need to yeah. say that. And you know it's a pile of shit. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's no coincidence that a large section of this team who involved in this film, they weren't allowed anywhere near the production no. <laughs> of the next film. It was all sort of back to Leonard Nimoy and Nicholas yeah. Meyer. And in fact, the executive producer of this film ended up becoming the producer of the next film because they got rid of Harv Bennett and all that. Trying to get the people who they thought were reliable and could do the job to do the next one because they yeah. just thought they kind of fucked up on this one. <laughs> yeah, it's clear to see. So... To wrap up on this episode, I mm-hmm. have the final two questions that I ask at the end of every single episode of Best Forgotten Movies. And first up, are you any closer to understanding why Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, has been forgotten? Uh, yes. Yeah. Because it's very anonymous. and uh, Perfect and word for it. Anonymous. Very anonymous and it's executed very lumpenly. Yeah. And yet also, it's, yeah, it just looks... Um, there are some bits where it does look quite good, but on the whole, this is a very easy comparison to say something like Superman 4, yeah. where the execution far outreaches the ambition, and yeah. it just comes off looking incredibly shoddy. Yeah, I'd say it's just a slightly more legitimate than Superman oh, yeah, 4, yeah. but um, largely I do have to agree. It's been forgotten because it was a ambitious film made by an inexperienced filmmaker, made by a studio that kind of forced them into chipping away whatever uniqueness or whatever good ideas that they did have and what we're left with is a nothing film that has nothing to say Hmm. and i think that's why it leaves such a little impression because you have to ask the question what was that about and that film was about nothing yeah so it's not even that it's an offensively bad film it's just it's the absence of a film it's a void of a film yeah and i'd say yeah that's completely why it's been forgotten and it deserved to have been forgotten in my opinion yeah yeah. Uh, which leads me to my next question, which I've once again answered before I've asked it, which is, um, is Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, one of the best of the forgotten movies, or should it simply remain best forgotten? Oh, yeah, it should definitely remain best forgotten because it doesn't have enough positives to contribute to the original cast series. Yeah. Pretty much every single other film has a big theme or something that it's saying or something that it's yeah. doing. Whereas this film... It's just a real just bland placeholder. Yeah. It's the film between Star Trek 4 and Star Trek 6, and that's all that you can really say about it. The only thing I would say for people who haven't seen it or may be curious about it is that if it is on YouTube or just if you just want to skip to the scene, watch the McCoy and his father scene, which yeah. is genuinely good. Maybe look at some of the effects reels and have and give yourself a good laugh. Yeah. And uh, maybe just check out that footage of the rock monster as well, because it is genuinely <laughs> fascinating yeah, as well. It is. But apart from that, no, nothing else. 
Yeah. Not really anything else. Yeah, and I agree. I think it should be best forgotten. It should remain best forgotten. Because at the end of the day, there's no story stakes in the film. So you could, if you were watching these films in sequence, you could easily just skip from four to six. That's the point as well, because it doesn't really follow on to anything. It's not mm. a continuation of a story. It does feel like an episode. Mm. It can be skipped entirely. And I guess yeah. that's something that's quite fortunate in this film's yeah. making. It's like that dodgy episode you get in a really good season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a bit like that, really. Yeah, it's the filler episode. Yeah. Where the budget's already been spent on <laughs> on like the episodes around it and yeah. they're holding back that's exactly how this film feels you can skip it entirely and that's all we have time for on this week's episode of best forgotten movies be sure to like share and subscribe you can also find us on facebook and twitter at b4 movies so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes also if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the itunes store And join us on our next episode as we watch The Bourne Legacy, a film so dull that it'll make you wish you were an amnesiac. But until then, it's bye from myself and quapla from Andy. Salute Enterprise. I like naked men. Thanks for listening.